I want to start by telling you about a coward. Uh, his name was Thomas Kremner. And uh, Thomas Kremner is responsible for the prayer book uh, that we hold dear in the Anglican community. Uh, a prayer book that we no longer have in our hands regularly in our services, but it is still very much the dominant force in the way our services are put together and the content of our services. The man was a genius uh, when he put it together. Really, uh, every time I open it, every time I'm trying to think about what I'm supposed to do as I prepare a service, I keep coming back to this prayer book that he put together and I think, how did you do that? How did you get all of that in one small little prayer? We owe him a great deal of debt, not that he's that worried about us paying it back. He's with the Lord and quite happy. But he was a coward. He was imprisoned by one of Henry VIII's daughters, the one who in absolute sincerity gave the church back to the Pope and in the process burnt thousands and thousands of ordinary Englishmen. Thomas Cramner was Archbishop of Canterbury at the time and he was put in prison and he was threatened with torture and death. And just before he was finally burnt to death, he wrote these words, I have sinned in that I signed with my hand what I did not believe with my heart. Therefore, when the flames are lit, this hand will be the first to burn. What had happened was in a moment of weakness, he had caved into the pressure of the thought of torture and the thought of death. And he wrote that he no longer believed the faith that he thought was clearly expressed in the Bible, but he believed what this new and powerful church was saying. He did it to save his own neck. And looking back on that moment, he felt nothing but shame. And those who were eyewitnesses when he was burnt said that that's exactly what happened. As the fires began to lick up around his body, he shoved his right hand into the fire first and you could see it melting before you. He was so ashamed that when push came to shove, he had been such a coward to save his own life that he would deny Jesus when thousands of ordinary Englishmen had died defending him. He, their supposed leader, had caved in. Now let me say, if you've been a Christian for anything more than five minutes, I suspect that to some level or another, to some extent or another, that is a feeling that you know. Getting to the point where where you've said things or or not said things, or done things or, or failed to do them, that as a genuine Christian make you embarrassed, ashamed. When you look back on them and you think, you think, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I kept quiet there. I can't believe I did that. What was I thinking? We get these moments that when we look back upon them and see nothing but failure, we, we wonder, am I a Christian? How can I be a Christian and keep messing up like this? And we despair and we doubt and we feel ashamed. You ever felt like that? You look back and you see failure. Moments perhaps of small failure but then there's the earthquake-like failures, aren't there? Those moments that you look back and say, how could I have done that? Well, The two passages I want us to look at tonight I think are a great help when you feel like that, when you know you've failed. When you look back and you say, how can I be a Christian and have treated God that way? Or how can I be a Christian and have treated that person that way? Well, come with me tonight and see a hero fall before us. And we're going to turn, first of all, to John chapter 18, the first reading we had 
And it's on page 1086 of the Church Bibles, 1086. Come and meet the Apostle Peter. This larger-than-life character, the, the standout disciple all throughout the Gospels, this massive physical presence he seems to be. He is, in his own mind, a hero. He's the leader. He's the strong one, the physical one, the loud one, the confident one. And when Jesus tells his disciples on the night before his death, you will all desert me, Peter's quick to reply, not me, Jesus, not me. You know, I'd go anywhere for you, to death if it came to that. I'd die for you. You can count on me. They might do it, but not me. Jesus says to him, no, Peter, you will deny me three times in one night. In fact, you'll do it tonight. Peter, no, Lord, you're thinking of them. I mean, they're weak like that. They're prone to do that sort of thing. They're cowards, a lot of them. Not me. I'm made of stronger stuff. I love you. I'm with you. I'll die for you if it comes to it. He's so sure of his own strength. This burly fisherman from Galilee, used to holding sway over, over any obstacle that comes his way. But then in John 18, and then it's recorded in all the Gospels for us, we have this horrible painful moment we see Jesus moving closer and closer to his death as as he comes before the high priest to be tried and we have Peter sheepishly following at a distance, a safe distance as Jesus is inside being tried and hit by the high priest Peter is outside on trial before what? A servant girl she asks him expecting a no answer. You didn't know him, did you? His answer, never knew him, never met the guy. And then the final time we're told in some of the Gospels, he calls down curses upon himself if he's lying. I do not know the man. The rooster crows and he runs and he weeps bitterly. This huge man, so strong, so sure, totally capitulated, totally broken. The crisis, of course, of of denying Jesus this way is that he's made clear at a number of points in the Gospel that if you're not willing to publicly acknowledge him, acknowledge that you are his, that you're with him, then Jesus will not publicly acknowledge you on the judgment day. He'll say, I never knew the guy. As Jesus stands strong before the high priest in verse 20, as he says, I spoke openly, I told the truth, You can ask anybody who was with me. You can ask anyone who heard. They'll tell you. Well, not Peter. He stands outside warming his hands by the fire. The equivalent of the water cooler at work or the pub with our mates. Standing there warming his hands, he gives in. And in the end, he takes his place with the high priest and with Pilate and with Judas in rejecting Jesus. I never knew the man. It's a tragic scene, isn't it? And Peter is not alone, is he? Nobody is with Jesus at this moment. Nobody goes to the cross defending him. And I guess the question that came to my mind as you read this part of John's Gospel is where are all the people we've met along the way? The people whose lives have been transformed in meeting Jesus. Where's the woman at the well? Where's the woman caught in adultery? Where is the man born blind? Where is Lazarus? This man who owes his entire life to Jesus, where is he? None of them. 
And it's easy to look at Peter, and I have a tendency to do this, I don't know about you, but we look at the disciples and we think, can't believe you did that. And we stand ready to cast the first stone at him. What a rat bag. How could he do it? And we very quickly circle the wagons. But none of us can cast the first stone at Peter. You know, at least he made it to the courtyard more than anyone else perhaps except John. And like Thomas Cramner, like Peter, we too have been full of bluster, full of songs pledging our faithfulness to him, full of creeds pledging our allegiance to him, only to have it all collapse in the first moments of Monday morning when a colleague asks us about our weekend and the Lord, well, he doesn't even rate a mention, never met the guy. But we miss the moment with a friend to speak for Jesus and we make up some lame excuse to ourselves and perhaps to others. I didn't want to damage the relationship. It's a slow process. I'm, I'm working up to it. We're just like Peter. You know, I remember when I, when I uh, was leading a youth group Bible study years back, I, I uh, used to have to walk from home to, to the church where we held the Bible study. It was about a 10-minute walk and I got into the habit of, I had my folder with all my Bible study notes and then I had my Bible with me and what I'd do is I, I grabbed the Bible and then I grabbed my notes and I didn't notice I was doing it at first and it took a while to realise. What I'd do is I'd make sure the notes were on the outside and I'd walk along straight through the shopping centre like this. No one knew I had the Bible, making sure no one knew I had the Bible. Pathetic. Pathetic, really. I did it for years. We're just like Peter. We deny him all too easily. And sometimes we don't even have to do it publicly. We, we speak of our trust in him, in our small groups, or when we gather together at church, or even just to ourselves. And then we go back to our real security, our wealth, or our career, or our family, and we say, that's where my real security is. But we sing of his grace, we, we sing of his, our trust in him, we sing of our, our desire to follow him and then we go back to internet porn. Wherever this predilection for denying the one who saved us shows itself, we end up where Peter ends up, grieving, weeping bitterly. Can't believe I did that. Well, where do you go when you reach that point? Who can you turn to when you fail big time like this? When you've just denied the one that you'd think you'd turn to? What can turn a failure like that around? Well, that's the beauty of where John has placed this story and the one we're about to look at. John 18, we have this huge capitulation by Peter, this, this desperate denial. The next two chapters are full of what? full of the greatest comeback, the greatest turnaround in all of history, the death and resurrection of his Lord. And once again, it is Peter who shows us where to go when you've failed Jesus. Where do you go? Well, you go back to him. You go to Jesus because he knows he's the only place to go to when you've failed. And that is beautifully captured for us in John 21. That's where I want us to go next. John 18, we see this huge failure John 19 and 20, we see God's great answer to our failure and then John 21, we see God put the pieces back together. And I want us to focus on verse 15 onwards of John 21. It's page 1090 if you're not there already. We have this wonderful story of Peter after his failure. I've got a a poster of a painting of, of this exact scene and it reminds me 
again and again of what God does with our failure. It's a great scene. Jesus has told them in one of the other Gospels to go back to Galilee and there they are and they're sort of scratching their heads wondering what to do and once again Peter, still the leader, says, well, let's go fishing. And they catch nothing. They're they're out there all night and as dawn comes they see a man on the shore but because of the distance they can't recognise him. And he calls out to them with great warmth. He says, children, have you caught anything? Not what you want to hear after a night's failed fishing and so it's a short and abrupt answer, no. Well then throw your nets on the other side. You know, this is like the backseat driver here telling them what they, what they should have known themselves. And so they do it. And in doing it, John, we're told the apostle Jesus loved the brains of the operation. I mean, Peter's the muscle, John's the brains. Realises who it is standing on the shore. He says, it's the Lord. Well, Peter is desperate, desperate to come back to him. He grabs his coat, he jumps into the water and he wades to the shore where Jesus is waiting, warming his hands by a fire. Now, don't miss what's happening here. Don't miss what Jesus is doing, the scene he is reconstructing. Remember the last time Peter warmed his hands by a fire? John 18, as he denied his Lord, now his Lord stands with him by the fire. And all the disciples gather around and they have a barbecue by the Sea of Galilee. It's a great scene, a warm scene. And we're told as the meal finishes in verse 15, I take it that Jesus now draws Peter aside. I think you get that from verse 20. They seem to be walking along the beach so they can look back and see John sort of shuffling along trying to see what's going on. Jesus draws Peter aside and they go for this walk. And notice in verses 15 to 17 how Jesus goes about restoring this great failure, Peter. Verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. That's a fascinating conversation. I don't think there's any like it in the Gospels. Simon. He doesn't call him Peter the name he gave him. Peter means the rock. Well, this rock has crumbled. Simon, do you love me more than these? Now there's all sorts of speculation what the these are here. Some say it's the the boat and the fishing. Do you love me more than your, your original career that you seem to have gone back to? Do you love me more than that? I think it's more obvious than that. The fact that the conversation happens three times, the fact that he keeps asking him that same question is a clear reference back to John 18 and Peter's denial three times of even knowing Jesus. What Jesus is asking Peter is, do you love me more than all of these disciples? I mean, that's what you told me. Remember on the the night that you denied me, you you, you said these disciples may all deny you, but, but I'd never do that. I love you too much to do that. I'd die for you. And so Jesus says to Peter, do you really love me more than them? Because you didn't. Three times you didn't. And notice Peter's answer. He's been asked to compare himself, something he's been quite happy to do all throughout the Gospels. Put himself up on a pedestal. They may all do this, but not me. Now he won't have a bar of the comparison. All the bluster's gone, all the self-confidence. He's learnt the foolishness of that. Instead, he simply says, Lord, you know. You know that I love you. He asks again and he gets the same answer. You know that I love you. 
He's pushing. What, what is your allegiance actually like to me? Would you call it love? Was that what you'd call what happened that night? And just think how you'd feel it if someone you knew and know, had known for years kept asking you this and you kept giving the same answer. Frankly, I'd get annoyed. I'd say, see answer one. We've covered this. But for Peter, as Jesus asks for a third time, as he peels back the scab of this huge failure, there's no bluster left, just grief and pain. You know I love you. It's a painful scene, isn't it? But so much like how God is always with us, who when he wants to restore you or me, he he doesn't do it by pretending He doesn't say, oh, it's all okay. He doesn't say you haven't sinned. No, with the living God there is never an excuse for sin. That's our trick, isn't it? One we've got to stop, I suspect, when it comes to our God. When we fail, we end up saying, I couldn't help it or it doesn't matter that much or I did it for these reasons. I had all of this. This is why it happened. God says, rubbish. Don't make excuses to God. That may impress your mother, it may even impress a dopey employer, but not God. He has no interest in our excuses. He never excuses sin, but he will forgive it totally and remember it no more. But here he wants Peter to come face to face with his failure, this dreadful act of betrayal. This is the way God deals with sin by calling it what it is, by never pretending. And it is through this process that Peter is both forgiven and restored, forgiven and reinstated to the very purpose God has for him. God forgives our failure and then he puts us back together so that we might live as he has called us to live. And in the final verses of John 21, we see two foundational aspects of why God restores us, what he restores us to. You see it here in how he responds to Peter's declaration of love. Firstly, he restores Peter. Do you see it there in verse 15 and 16 and 17 so that Peter can care for his sheep? When Jesus forgives Peter, it's not just a matter of saying, well, let's call it quits, slate wipe clean, we're back to even. No, he's totally reinstated. It's like Jesus is saying, you're the biggest failure, forgiven, okay, now you're in charge. Where would you see that in our world? Nowhere. Each time Peter responds with this declaration of love, Jesus says to him, well then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Now I don't know about you, but uh, the Bible is quite regular with this reference to us as the people of God, Christians like you and I, as as sheep. I don't know a lot about sheep, but uh, they strike me as pretty dopey creatures small of brain and prone to wander. Now, there might be some vets here who will tell me otherwise they might be genius creatures for all I know, but they don't seem to be. And yet that's what God calls us, sheep, small of brain and prone to wander. And yet this is Peter's charge, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. Jesus calls upon Peter to care for the thing on this planet that matters most to God, his people, You see what he's saying to us here? If you're someone who claims to love Jesus, as Peter does here, then you need to realise that he doesn't come to us alone. 
When we come to Jesus and when we declare our love for him, we are declaring our love for his bride as well. And so what Jesus says to Peter is a natural response to love for him. You love me? Okay. Well then care for my people. You want to serve me? Great. Serve them. And really in John 21 we have the two key activities of of the Christian life. In In the first half which we looked at this morning we have once you have been forgiven God restores you to be a fisherman. Fishers of men. We are called to bring people to the Lord but now we're given this second great task which is shepherding, caring for God's sheep. Now I don't know about you but my experience of caring for sheep is that it's a painful business. But this is what he restores us to do. Restores us to look after people just like Peter, just like us, inconsistent prone to talk big and deliver little, prone to ups and downs, unreliable. Jesus says, love them. If you love me, then love them. Sheep, inconsistent, unreliable, up and down. Sounds like a description of the staff team here, to be honest. Sounds like most of the small groups that I have visited over the year or so that I have been here so far. Sounds like our church. You ever been let down by a Christian? You ever been hurt by one? Ever been surprised by another Christian's inconsistency? You have? Well, welcome to the sheep pen. And the problem with our church is it's full of them. And we come to our our annual parochial church meeting in a couple of weeks, we may as well call it Failures Anonymous because that's who we are. And do you know what Jesus says to you? He says, do you love me? Do you really love me? Then look around. Look around tonight and feed my sheep. Care for them. Well, let me give you one way, and I think there's lots of ways that we're called to care for each other, care for God's sheep. But let me give you one way that you can do that. And it might sound like I'm a bit like a broken record on this, and I'm not ashamed about that. And it might sound a bit blunt. If you love Jesus then you should be in a small group in this church. If you love Jesus, you should be in a small group in this church. If you claim to love Jesus, you need to be in one. Jesus says, feed my lambs. And God tells us that the food we need most as Christians, the food we live by, real food, is every word God has spoken to us. That's what's going to sustain those around you. That's what's going to grow them, change them, and give them the grace they'll need when they fail you and each other. You want to care for the sheep around you? Well then feed each other on God's word. And I reckon in our situation, being a large church, the way you're going to do that genuinely is being in a small group of people. Now, I don't want to get legalistic about this. There's all sorts of ways that you can gather with other Christians. But let me say that if you love Jesus, then you need to be doing that. If you want to love this church family, if you want to love those around you, to see them grow in the knowledge and love of God, if you want them to experience genuine Christian relationships because that's all caring for his sheep means, then feed them. Jesus says, do you love me? If your answer is, you know I do, Lord, then feed his sheep. So let me encourage you, if you're not in a group like that of some form, you need to be. And not just for yourself. 
Let me say, if you, if you come to me, and I, I hope I get lots of people say, I want to join a small group uh, tonight or in the coming weeks. If you come to me and, and ask that, don't come with a list, a menu-like list of the sort of things you want from the group. I want you to come ready to feed sheep, ready to care for those in the group that you will join. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And how can you get to a point where you'd be so unneedy that you'd be willing to do that? That you'd see that as your life's work, caring for his sheep. Well, what Jesus is saying to Peter and he's saying to us here is it will only happen if you understand yourself to be a complete moral failure, restored in the grace of Jesus. How can we be so disposed to each other's care in the way that Jesus asks here? Well, only when you're aware of your own weakness, when you know how utterly broken you are before Jesus and you think, well, if there's other people around like me here, well, they're going to need some help. Feed my sheep. The second thing Peter is restored to do, we see in verse 18. He restores Peter so that he can follow Jesus. Having forgiven him, having given him this wonderful job of caring for his sheep, Jesus now shows him the extent of the commitment he is asking. He says of Peter, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. I love this. Jesus is right up front with Peter. I want you to love me. I want you to love my sheep. And love for me and my sheep is going to cost you your life. It's going to cost you everything. You know, Jesus doesn't hand uh, Peter a glossy brochure and say, welcome back, great things ahead, buddy. He says, no, you will die for this. And the most accurate histories we have says that this is exactly what happens to Peter under the rule of Nero. He was crucified. Some histories even say that uh, when it came to his crucifixion, he didn't want to be crucified the same way his Lord was and so he ended up being crucified upside down. And so Peter is recommissioned to this wonderful service of caring for his sheep, a care that will cost him everything, even his life. Now how could you ever get to a point where you'd be willing to forsake everything for him, to leave things behind for the sake of his sheep? Jesus answered to Peter, I tell you how I'm going to give you that sort of heart, Peter. I want you to model the rest of your life the rest of your ministry on the pattern of my death. That's how you're going to do it. As I stretched out my arms for you, so too will you for others. When really on the cross, Jesus becomes the ultimate shepherd, doesn't he? The ultimate carer of the sheep, giving himself for a people for whom he was going to get nothing back from. You too now will do this, he says, so follow me. Now just before our passage ends, we get this lovely dose of reality for fear that, that, that Peter has become not like us and now uh, unable to fail, all of a sudden the old Peter rears his head again. They're walking along the beach and he looks back and he sees John, his, his great friend John. He's just heard the news that, that he has to serve God and it's going to cost him his life, he's going to die. He says, what about him? You know, I, I have to do this dying thing, well, what about him? He always gets the the good jobs. 
Jesus' simple answer and blunt answer in verse 22, essentially, none of your business, Peter, what about him? None of your business. And I think here is one of the most liberating secrets of living as a Christian. Jesus says, don't worry about him. Don't worry. Stop comparing yourself to everyone else. That's what got you in this mess in the first place. I've got a plan for him. And frankly, it's none of your business. And you don't have any idea what is fair and right, what their life should have in it or not have in it. Stop worrying about them. Stop looking at them. Look at me, says Jesus. Follow me. I think that's something we all need to hear. We get to those points in our Christian lives where it seems to be costing us a great deal and we look around and it doesn't seem to be costing others nearly as much. Jesus says, don't worry about that. Follow me. Knowing that I will never leave you or forsake you. Knowing even when you fail, I'll be standing strong. You are mine. I bought you at a price. Trust me. Follow me, says Jesus. Let me finish just for a moment by celebrating together what I think is right at the heart of this passage and that is the God of second chances. The wonder of this passage for me and the reason I have that poster stuck up on my wall is it shows us how God's grace totally realigns our own sense of value and our own sense of identity and even our own sense of our future. And Peter was a self-confident, self-made, self-assured kind of guy. His value and his identity and even his plans for his future are totally bound up in his own strength. But for Peter, his failure turns out to be a great blessing, doesn't it? God turns it for good. God can bring great blessing out of terrible failure, giving us knowledge of ourselves that perhaps we were frightened of and knowledge of Christ that we long for and desperately need. When you see yourself the real self, that is, the, the weakness of it, the, the double-mindedness of it. We'll do anything not to face it usually, to, to hide it, to keep up appearances. But we need to learn how very weak we are. Now, your areas of weakness are going to be different than mine, but we all have them. And I suspect when we're honest, we, we know them full well. Well, Peter had his place before him by Jesus brought him right down to humility, but it was from there and only there that you get to see the depths of God's love and the power of his restoration. You know, Jesus had every reason to to say to Peter, that's it, buddy. The hour when I needed a friend most, the hour when I needed someone to talk and stand up for me, you denied me three times. But instead, he's the one who takes the initiative. He comes to Peter, he seeks him out, wins him back and restores him. You know, we live in a world where big failure means the end. No way back. We see it all the time in our society, the great and the powerful brought low by a failure. Our society is geared up to say you have one chance, don't blow it. But for the Christian, the answer to failure, after seeing it honestly, is always grace. Failure with God is never final. It may seem like it, but I take it that's Satan's great work. Saying to us when we sin, when we deny the Lord in some way, that you can't come back from this. God's through with you. You're a hypocrite. Stop pretending. 
It's Satan's most terrible work. First he tempts us to deny the Lord and then he accuses us, saying we can't go home to him. With God, with the God who gave his own son for you, the God who raised him from the dead, there is always a new page to be written, a fresh start, because he is the God of second chances. Now I've been a Christian for close in on 20 years. Some of you probably double or triple that. Let me tell you, I I feel like a spiritual cat. I have nine times 99 times 1,000 times when God has said, okay, well, let me wipe you clean, let me dust you off yet again and let's get back to it. God says to us, I will remember your sins no more. In the end, our failure need not be final. It can be overwhelmed by his grace. You know, John Newton was an appalling sinner both before and after he was saved. And on his tombstone he he asked for these words to be written, simple words. He said, Here lies a great sinner with an even greater saviour. I suspect they're words we need to remember. Here lies a great sinner with an even greater saviour. Let's pray.